Welcome to A New Kind of PD, Teaching Channel's podcast where we tackle challenges in education and provide ways to inspire and engage in meaningful professional development. I'm Erica Snyder, Engagement Coordinator for Teaching Channel, coming to you from our location in San Antonio, Texas. This week, we are talking unions. Yes, unions. No one can deny they play a role in what we do at school, how the day is shaped, how learning happens, if teachers are happy, contented, and confident in their work. There are sometimes a mysterious other space in education that swoop in and out as part of a salary cycle or when things get tough for teachers. But where do they stand on teacher professional learning and how do they nurture teacher leadership? We will find out today with our guest, Mary Catherine Ricker, Executive Vice President of the American Federation of Teachers. Thanks for being here today. And if you're listening live, jump on into the chat room where we'll be posting links to materials related to today's show. Class is now in session. Hi, Mary Catherine. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. This should be a really interesting and informative episode. Um, today, I'm also joined by Teach's own newly promoted Senior Director of Engagement, Paul Teske. Hi, Paul. Hi. Um, I'm going to do something a little different today and let you give a bit of background on our guests since you have a personal connection to Miss Mary Catherine. Yeah, so I first met Mary Catherine at a, a figure skating class when we were in preschool. And right. we went all the way through school together. Her dad was my algebra teacher twice. Uh, for algebra one and two, I didn't have to repeat. Um, I probably should have. That's right. Um, but I've known Mary all my life. Um, we were in school together. We were in high school together. Catherine, or Mary Catherine, was also the most um, voted the most likely to succeed, along with Tom Sullivan. I got best dancer, I think, of my class. <laughs> you can you tell did. the difference between the two of us. Uh, but I'm really pleased that uh, she's here with us today. And um, I just recently uh, found out that she was in her position as uh, vice president. Um, so I'm super excited to have her and to um, reconnect with her. So that's Mary Catherine. And we grew up in Hibbing, Minnesota, by the way. First, I will just say thank you for having me. And it is really exciting that our professional lives have crossed this way as well given that, yeah, we, we grew up together and um, Hibbing is a small town in that way and that we, you know, we, our paths crossed so often and so it's really wonderful to, to cross professionally now. And then um, I'll just say, you know, to borrow a line from our fellow classmate, Carrie Rocker, who uh, lives in New York City now, that um, we are both from Hibbing, Minnesota, but um, because Bob Dylan is also from Hibbing, Minnesota, it means we will never be the most famous people from Hibbing, Minnesota. <laughs> or the coolest, that's for sure. That's um, right. Or most talented. Yeah, or as talented. Yeah, for sure. So um, since I don't know you like Paul does, no figure skating in our previous um, right. connection, seeing as we met like 10 minutes ago, um, could you explain a little bit about how you got to this place in your career? And also, um, for people who may be in non-union states like I am, um, or who haven't connected with unions in a while, what the AFT is and, and what it does? Absolutely. Yeah, it's actually um, it's actually a really exciting question to answer because if you are not familiar with them, then um, the you know the the assumptions might abound. And so, so first personally, I actually went to um, went to school to become a teacher. Uh, an English teacher and got licensed and and taught for uh, 13 years in uh, both in Minnesota and in Washington State and actually a year in Seoul, South Korea uh, before um, in St. Paul running for president of my local union, the St. Paul Federation of Teachers. 
and and I decided to run having having been a union activist during my career you know I would I would volunteer for um, different campaigns we would be on or I would um, attend our union socials and our back to school events and um, I would help you know I I would help uh, sign people up to to join the union to join us and so um, in 2005, uh, about a year after I earned my national board certification, I decided to run for president of my union. And I was really motivated because I saw something happen in those 13 years of teaching that I wasn't really excited about because I love teaching as a career. But this, this dominant sort of bad teacher and then certainly bad teacher union narrative started to, um, started to get louder and louder. And... Uh, it, it really was counter to what my experience was as a teacher and the dedicated people I was teaching alongside and the problem solving I always felt like I could do in my union. And so there was this one very public story being told about teachers and that was very counter to the private experience I was having as a teacher myself and as a member of my union. And so I wanted to run for union president so that I could help change that narrative. And, and I won, which was really exciting and of course it's daunting as well. And, um, and so in my nine years being president, um, getting reelected in St. Paul to be our, the president of the St. Paul Federation of Teachers, I really tried to change that narrative so that people could see a public narrative, which was the one that was my experience, and that was that I was working alongside incredibly dedicated professionals who went into education to improve people's lives, and that our union was a place to solve problems. and. Um, you know, and improve education. And uh, so ultimately, that's one of the reasons that Randy Weingarten, who's the current president of the American Federation of Teachers, um, and Loretta Johnson, who is our current secretary treasurer, asked me to run with them in 2014 uh, because Randy had been doing the same thing at a national level. She had become president of AFT in 2008, and she immediately created the AFT Innovation Fund, which was a place that was going to incubate uh, the best ideas of union members across the country and um, she really helped give us an offense, helped create an offense um, when, when discussions of teacher evaluation and, and teaching talent uh, were happening across the country. She made sure to invest in teachers so that we would be the, the people who would be tapped to have those conversations around what we saw as, str as strong teaching and, and the support of strong teachers. And, and she, you know, so she did a number of these things, and, I, and so I think my leadership really complemented what she had been doing at a national level. And I won my election in, in 2014 to join the team of Randy and Loretta, and, and what I got to join was AFT, a national union. Our, um, our tagline is a union of professionals, and what people don't know, uh, because we have teacher in our name, is we actually represent a large number of paraprofessionals uh, working alongside our teachers. We're actually, um, we represent a number of higher education faculty across the country, um, healthcare professionals and nurses, and public employees. So when you think of those people in your community who go into their work um, to leave the world a little better than the way they found it, chances are good uh, they are one of our constituencies in the AFT because we actually represent more than teachers. And, and so we take that responsibility really seriously. Again, the idea that our union can solve problems, not just on the workplace. Of course, those traditional you know, wages and benefits issues, absolutely. You know, we want to talk about 
how we can you know, make sure that our members have affordable, accessible health care for them and their families. But increasingly, we're looking for opportunities for how our union can work alongside our, you know, our, our constituents, right? our members in, the, members in the community, to actually improve conditions, how we can break down barriers um, to affordable housing, for example, or how we can increase affordable health care for all, for everyone in the community and not just our members. And so, so the AFT absolutely works on those traditional wages, benefits, and working conditions and issues of our members. But we want to increasingly look for opportunities to work for the common good in our communities as well. Great. Um, so, Mary, what's motivating your work right now currently? What are you, where are you gaining the most of your motivation and your why for being in the, the job that you're doing? Yeah, no, that is such a great question because I, my motivation comes from a variety of places, but I have to say there are a few things um, that I keep coming back to that are re reoccurring themes. Um, and one is every time I get the opportunity to go into a classroom and, and be alongside, particularly middle schoolers, since the vast majority of my career was teaching middle school English, even though I'm licensed 7 through 12. Um, so... So I would say that you know the, the one thing that I that I can consistently count on to be a motivation is to be among students, and for me, especially middle school students, because um, you may know when you when you are a teacher and you end up taking a teacher leadership position that pulls you out of the classroom, your world becomes very adult very fast. And even if you're spending your entire day talking about students, um, that is not the same thing as spending a day with students. And, and so they become my motivation because, you know, students don't care what your title is. They don't, you know, they don't care what you did yesterday or what you're going to do tomorrow. They want to know what you're going to bring them right now. And, and so they are a constant source of my motivation because they, they are challenging and they are um, entertaining and they are thirsty for information. And they are, you know, they hold you to a really high standard as an adult, as well they should. Um, and so I am always delighted when members invite me to be part of their classrooms because I get that, I get that daily motivation then um, to, to say this is why I do my work. Um, I would say the other thing is when I get the opportunity to work in community, with other people who are looking at a, sort of a full spectrum of a student's day or a full spectrum of, you know, of the community's day and, you know, and folks who want to improve, maybe it's, a, you know, improving access to out-of-school time programming or, again, in, improving access to, to fair housing or to health care. Um, I really, it's, it's a real motivation for me to sit at the table with people who welcome me as someone who's going to help solve that problem and, um, you know, rather than find, you know, find some sort of skepticism, like what's the teacher doing at the table, what can she bring? Um, and it's a real source of motivation when folks bring that, um, you know, sort of bring that can-do attitude to me at the table as well. Obviously, our podcast is called The New Kind of PD, so we're thinking about professional learning and professional development and how we can help change that. Um, but we're wondering, like, what have you been noticing through your experiences across the country with how professional learning is changing, um, and, and what is the role of the union in, in that change that you're seeing? Yeah, um, I will talk specifically around and one of the most encouraging things I'm seeing in professional development 
which actually abuts right up against one of the most frustrating things I'm seeing in professional development. And that is one of the most encouraging things is more and more people are understanding that that PD needs to be embedded in a teacher's practice, right? In a, in a school day, in the school year. It can't be the sort of thing that's just tacked on. You know, I, I think early in my career it was still like this, where it was tacked on to maybe an extra hour at the end of the day or, you know, um, a couple days at the end of the school year and a couple days at the beginning of the school year. Um, you know, and it was just sort of um, tacked on there one way or the other. And, and so I am really encouraged that more and more people are understanding that it has to be a part of the school day. It has to be a part of the school year and meaningfully placed that way, right? More and more school districts experimenting with early release days or regular late start days, um, you know, to help get that regular time to work together and learn together. That being said, my frustration in that is it, it is coming right up against a school day that has largely not changed since, you know, the early 70s when secondary and elementary teachers first won preparation time regularly in their school day. And so what you are trying to do is you're trying to squeeze what should be a really potent learning opportunity among teachers into a school day that is not built for that learning whatsoever. It's not built to recognize that learning opportunity at all. And, and so you're still getting little bits and pieces of this learning tacked on and asking people to come in a half hour early or stay a half hour late. And, um, and I think that's actually going to be the next big conversation we're going to need to have as a country is what should a school day look like if we, if we do expect uh, learning to regularly be embedded into a teacher's day. Yeah, you know, Mary, that's a lot of what we're actually doing at Teaching Channel through the use of video. Um, mm -hmm. So people can actually record themselves and watch it later or work with others as part of PLCs or coaching situations. Um, and so, you know, we, we, we're going after that um, quite a bit, you know, the job embedded stuff and making it highly yeah. relevant, um, not just second get. Um, so with the role of video, you know, we find that teachers are really into it. There's a number of them that are. Um, we have some yeah. folks like in Teton and down in California that are super into it in the act of modeling and also reflecting. And so they're finding value in it. I, and you probably did too as national board certified and whatnot. Um, yep. But there's also a group of people that out there that may not trust it so much. And I wonder if you have any sort of anything to say about how teachers um, might become more involved in it and into that process and how t how districts and schools can make it uh, less daunting for them. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, and, I, and you are speaking to someone who is a real believer in videotaping yourself periodically, uh, whether you have a, a professional learning community to go over the tapes with or whether it's just you kind of watching them from time to time. Um, if anyone is uncomfortable with watching themselves on videotape, just Keep practicing and try to get over that because it can be a really, it, it can be some of your best professional development just watching yourself teach and noticing those little things that you wouldn't necessarily notice in the course of your day. Um, and so, and you're absolutely right, when I earned my National Board certification, that was actually the first time I had done any meaningful taping of myself and then watching of myself. And so, I... I mean, I had to do it quite a bit to actually even get myself to a point where 
I wanted to watch it to learn and not just sort of get over myself mm -hmm. and you know say like oh my gosh why am I standing there what you know like the first thing I noticed was all these little things where I was like why do I do that why didn't I you know uh -huh. why didn't I pick that paper off the ground when it fell like now it's bothering me <laughs> and, so, um, and, at, and so at the same time though given in the last decade or so the hyper focus on um, on essentially accusing teachers of failure to teach before you've ever even seen them teach, right? These these national conversations around, you know, the failure of our teachers to meet the needs of students and, you know, so every teacher is feeling so defensive right now. Uh, and you have teachers across the country just assuming that any new initiative that gets introduced is designed as another way to catch them, right? To catch them and, you know, not meeting the needs of their students when that's all they're trying to do. So, that being said, I would say, and the very first thing if, um, is to, I would just say, is first practice videotaping yourself before your school even introduces you the idea. If the school has already introduced the idea, saying, hey, this is a great way to learn, don't just take my word for it, you know, I'm going to take an excerpt of this podcast where the executive vice president of AFT is saying it's a great <laughs> opportunity to learn. Um, the first thing I would do is is talk about like what's holding you back from using it as a learning tool and and be really transparent about what those things are if you are concerned that a videotape of yourself teaching is going to be used to discipline you um, then then say that um, and then also um, you know and talk about where that comes from it that's coming from the fact that you know you feel like your principal has been out to get you or you feel like um, you know, there's a there's a mandate in the district to you know to try to let go of let go of teachers or something. I think it's I think it's really smart to just name what is holding you back from using it as a powerful teaching tool because it won't be powerful for you if in the back of your head you're really concerned that it's going to be misused. And then you know it probably will come as no surprise that the you know teacher who is a union leader will say this. But I would take your take those concerns to your union and say, how can we problem solve together to make sure that my videotape is used to help me learn and my videotape isn't used to, to discipline me or to, you know, used as part of an improvement plan um, right out of the gate. You know, if it's meant to be a teaching tool, how can it be a teaching and learning tool for me? Um, and there are a variety of things your union can do. And one um, establishing a healthy labor management relationship is one of the first things I would suggest to make sure that you can have a healthy discussion about this about to get to the true intentions of why you know why teachers uh, are going to be videotaped for their professional development and then if you you know if if there is an interest and and there's an opportunity to to even negotiate a memorandum of understanding of how these tapes will be used who has the right to view them, um, how they're, you know, where they're, like, who has, who has the right to even hold on to them, or do they remain the teacher's property because it's their teaching, um, because it is their teaching and is used for professional development. These are all things that you can actually really proactively address, um, and your union as, um, you know, as a representative of a, a union of professionals is poised to actually have that conversation and make sure that 
you know, those things that might be holding you back from using it as a really profound teaching tool get addressed um, so that you can actually take full advantage of a, of a videotape of yourself teaching to learn from it. Thanks, Mary. That's great. Mm -hmm. So a lot of what you were talking about um, is, is something that we have also seen when working with video in the classroom is just that trust has to be there in the work. Um, and if you're going to build those trusting relationships with your union or with your at your your building level or your district level, it just it's hard work, um, and it's something that needs to be there. So from your perspective, how do you nurture and develop that trust, um, especially given you know some districts go through seriously contentious conversations after a strike or the talks that take a year, year and a half, Absolutely. and the uncertainty that comes along with that. Like, how do you build and nurture that, that trust and then keep it when tough, times get tough? Yeah, I, this is an excellent question because uh, I think you know any of us who have been in education, we've walked into buildings where you can tell the trust level is high and you can, you can feel it and you see it in the adults' interactions with each other. And we've walked into buildings where there is no trust or trust has been shattered and you can feel it and see it in adult interactions as well. And then happening is you, you know, you end up, you know, seeing students who sort of pay the cost of that or you end up seeing students benefit from those highly trusted relationships. And, and so this is probably something that is not terribly unique to education, um, although this is, you know, because that's my background, I know this audience the best, and that is, I mean, the first line in establishing trust is being good in your word and demonstrating that you're good to your word. And so if you're an administrator and you want people to trust you, they have to, they have to see that you're going to follow through on things. And so if you say, you know, I'm going to, you know, if you say at the beginning of the school year, for example, um, staff meetings, will only be about important topics. If it can be put in an email, I am not going to waste your time at a staff meeting about it. And then, and then sure enough, if, if you demonstrate that in the first few staff meetings, that they're really about you know, pulling the staff together to, to discuss sort of the news of the day for that school, maybe, pro maybe do some problem solving together, maybe anticipate what the next month's going to be like, and, you know, and, and make sure that everybody feels like they're sort of ready for the you know, the next big topic you're going to tackle or, or the next, next big, um, you know, field trip that's going to happen. Um, but if you say, like, oh, trust me, I'm never going to waste your time at a staff meeting with things that could be put in a memo, and you spend the first 20 minutes of every staff meeting sort of just reading, you know, like, don't forget to get your kids to sign up for their school lunch accounts, and don't forget to tell them it's picture day on the 20th, and don't forget to, if you, you know, if you're not good on your word on those little things, that's where you start chipping away at that trust so that when the big things come and you say, oh, no, 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 listen, I am just doing these walkthroughs to kind of to check to see if everybody's having a good day and I just want to make sure that students see me visible in the buildings, right? And, and so if you tell, you're an administrator and you tell your staff one thing, like, I just want students to see me, and then these walkthroughs end up being, you know, Mary Catherine, I want to know why you didn't have the word, um, composite on your word wall. I thought all of the sixth grade teachers were going to have the word composite on their word walls. Like, well, you know, I thought actually the, the walk was so that students could see you. I didn't know the walk was for the word wall, but I have a perfectly good answer for why the word composite isn't on my word wall. Um, you know, the, those are the sorts of things that are going to break down trust. Likewise, um, if teachers, 
expect to be trusted by their principal, we have to be good at our word as well. And and so that means that if I am going, you know, if 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 we've made a commitment to teach the you know the English language arts standards, um, then you know what I want to make sure I, every day I I can tell you what standards I am teaching to or why I'm remediating on a standard I I, I taught to last week and and I'm going to be good to my word and if I'm veering off of that because there is a there's a current event that just has to be discussed and, and students are craving that discussion, I'm going to have a really good answer for why I'm veering off as well. And I'm going to be, and that's going to demonstrate why I want you to trust me as a professional, why you've hired me to do a professional job and you can trust me to do that professional job. Because I'm going to be able to back up my decision making with, with my expertise, right, from, you know, from my chair here is you know why I needed to construct this week's lessons the way I did and here's why I needed to bring in this community current event into my classroom because I respect um, the experiences of my students in um, you know in their neighborhood so much that I wanted them to know that I could that I knew what they went through over the weekend and they had they had a space to explore it um, using the critical thinking skills I've been practicing with them and I'm going to use my expertise to back that up. Um, and when you approach the decisions you make like that, where you follow through on them, you are going to start establishing that trust. And, and the last thing I will say to that is in building relationships. It does help that you build relationships beyond just the one-to-one -one sort of teacher to administrator and even teacher to student. Building relationships with your colleagues is going to take time. Um, building them around concepts and ideas that you share, building them around areas where you are weak and you know you can tap into their strength to make you better um, is another powerful way. And building relationships with the families of our students be also becomes that way of building broader trust in a school community to make problem solving um, a little less daunting and, and certainly a, a little more uh, productive, quite frankly. Great. Um, so, Mary, you're a, an amazing leader, um, and there's a lot of talk these days around teacher leadership, and yeah. it sort of as a not really a. I hope it's more than just a buzzword, um, and definitely it is if practiced right. But I'm curious about um, uh, how you see it as different, and how you define it, and how mm -hmm. it might be different from regular old teaching and regular leadership as we know it. Yeah, no, I think this is a great question because because uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, it certainly has become a buzzword. Um, there are definitely folks who stand in front of teachers and talk about teacher leadership and think that that's right away going to be how they win the hearts and minds of the teachers they're standing in front of. And teachers are asking those very, they are filtering that discussion through the very same question you just asked. How is this different than what I actually do practice as you know, as a classroom teacher, <laughs> and how is this different than sort of the old leadership trajectory that is, you know, that's sort of welded into our experience in a uh, public education system in the United States. And, and I think the, I, there, are, there are a number of answers to that, and I think first, one of the steps people skip over often when they discuss teacher leadership is actually, I think, one of the most crucial ones, and that is, in our desire to create new leadership 
positions, right? A recognition of new, new teacher leadership. We often skip over practiced leadership that we just historically haven't recognized as leadership. You know, one of the things I did as local president in St. Paul was um, at the negotiating table, we talked about hosting student teachers and how that needs to be a place where we recognize someone's leadership. And it was actually a really hard-fought discussion at the bargaining table because often, you know, the, the answer from my administration was, well, we just need bodies, you know, we just need people to host all of these student teachers because we don't have enough people saying yes. And I said, well, because part of it is you don't recognize the commitment it takes to do that work well. And if, you know, that is, if anything, that is a consummate leadership position that gets overlooked all the time. Hosting a student teacher or an intern or an apprentice, you know, hopefully depending on how robust the program is, mm -hmm. should, be, should be the sign that you have arrived as a professional, accomplished practitioner. And sometimes it is. In some districts, it is. But in some districts still, it's actually the sign that you were the person in the lunchroom when the phone rang and said, you know, so-and-so college is looking to place someone in an English class. Are you available next semester? You know, it, it, like there was no there was no attempt to come watch me teach. There was no interview I had to go through. There was no there was no recognition of what my contributions are to the profession. Perhaps it, both in my classroom and outside of my classroom. And so, I would say, as we want to fan the flames of this conversation around teacher leadership one of the first things we should do is look at the work teachers do already that actually in any other profession would be considered a leadership position and not someone who grabbed the short straw and not someone who's just whose turn it is to be department chair for example um, or someone whose turn it is to serve on the faculty uh, advisory board um, you know, actually look at those leadership positions and then build out, like, what are the characteristics it takes to be a good chair of your department, for example, or to be a good host to a student teacher or, you know, or to serve on that faculty advisory board. Um, and from there, then, I think that makes the positions that are, you know, the newer positions in education that people are starting to gravitate for in, in seeing as teacher leadership is leadership positions, you know, those coaching positions, for example, um, it puts them in some context. Because as soon as you have a standard set for classroom-based leadership positions, then you've actually set another standard as well for those leadership positions that may actually be taking you out of a classroom at the same time. And that's, that's the difference I see from, like, what you sort of characterized as regular old leadership, right? Traditionally, the way we would reward strong teachers is we would say, you're a fabulous teacher, so our reward for you is going to be take, is to take you as far away from students you were fabulous with as we can, and we're going to turn you into an assistant principal or a principal or a dean of students or, um, or a coach, when really we should turn that on its head and say, you are so good for students that you are ready to host a student teacher so someone can learn from you. That is, you know, and to see some of those classroom-based works of leadership, right? Like, we're going to host walks into your classroom so people can see 
your writer's workshop so people can see your math lessons, etc. Like those are those like that's how you build out those career pathways, I think, and that's a big way I think it differs from those sort of typical or traditional leadership trajectories. Okay, super. Um, so we do have somebody on the line. Um, cool. let's see if she'll unmute herself. Uh, Hello, I'm here. Hi, can you tell us your name? Yeah, I'm Pam Zitterich from Minnesota. Oh, Pam. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Mary. Catherine. Pam's name begins with a silent S. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I'd make a special. Yeah, you, a special I know. Movie. And you dropped another name in there, too, girl. That's right. That's right. This can be the special Hibbing edition of the, of the uh, channel's podcast. Right. That's That's a, awesome. So, Pam, do you got something? I've been listening for about the last 30 minutes, Mary, and I um, agree with everything that you've said and spent some time today coaching one of my teachers in a balanced literacy classroom and agree that one of the best things we can do is get in there with the students and share that enthusiasm with teachers. Absolutely. So, so my yeah. question to you today would be, mm -hmm. It's October, conferences are here, we're writing things, we're busy, we're grading papers. What advice would you give to teachers to help them keep their sanity at this time of year? Oh, absolutely. Um, or any time of year, quite frankly, right? But everything has settled in now. And, and you're right, it, we are, um, you know, one of the things we have noticed is that we are compressing more and more into a day that was never built for more and more. Um, and so I, I, would say, I would say a couple things, right? One, back to, those back to those relationships. I think part of the way you also build relationships is you find people you can talk about these pressures with. Um, and, and not just, sometimes you just need to vent and you can name it as that, but also to talk about it in a problem-solving way to say, like, I, you know, I want, you know, name it, like, I want to do a really good job in my class, and I want to give really thoughtful feedback for conferences coming up, and I want to make sure I reach out to my family so that I have better attendance than I did last year, but I cannot find the hours in the day to do all three of those things, and I am afraid one of them will, you know, one of them is going to drop, right? I'm either not going to be the teacher I need to be for my kids, I'm not going to be the communicator I need to be with families or I am not going to be sort of the, you know, the, the outreach coordinator I need to be to get the number of families to my school. And, and so sometimes it just, sometimes it does help to just name that because there may be someone else who has a method that they use to tackle one of those things, right? Like, oh, this time of year is when the fourth grade team always gets together and we lesson plan together so that it goes... You know, it goes faster because many hands make light work. Or someone else might say, oh, here's the way I do outreach to families, and I've created, you know, I've created this opportunity where, where you know, students um, are taught the responsibility of communicating that themselves and then communicating to me what, um, you know, when their conferences. Um, or it comes, you know, and I, because you bring up conferences, I think that's a great example. Um, you know, a few years ago, we had a number of teachers come to us in St. Paul, come to the union we were going into negotiations and saying, 
you know, the, the way we do conferences now just doesn't seem to fit our school community. Um, it seemed to fit 20 years ago when sort of these cattle call conferences fit into a, you know, the after school day of, of families, but they don't seem to fit now. Can we get permission to do conferences a little different? And, um, and we were able to bring that idea, now that's a long-term solution, right, to sort of the daily sanity every day you need. Uh, but sometimes when you're, you know, you're sitting in the school lunchroom or, or after school having coffee with each other and you're discussing, like, something's got to give, it, you, might want, you might want to invest in that longer-term solution and say, yeah, what would be a better way of spending three hours engaging families than sitting in a cafeteria and having parents feel like I have to set a timer on them for seven minutes because I have to get through everybody. And so because I have to get through everybody, nobody actually has a meaningful conversation with me. Um, Absolutely. Yep. That, you know, it, I think that becomes one of the ways. It also breaks down the isolation that for, for such a social profession, Right? And this is the other reason I love being in a classroom with students because it is a social atmosphere even when they are super quiet, maybe, I mean, just like, you know, they just got done diving into an assignment or into a piece of reading or something. It's still a very social atmosphere. And yet, at the same time, teachers don't have the opportunity to have conversations with adults very much during the day. And we have to break down that professional isolation because we can't just have our most professional conversations happen in the parking lot on the way to our respective cars at 4.45, you know, rushing before the daycare closes and we get our kids or we get charged $5 a minute, you know? <laughs> mm -hmm. Speaking from experience. Well, yes, absolutely. <laughs> to piggyback on that, Mary, what I'm hearing you say um, really feeds in a lot with our PLCs that we're working with so carefully in our building. And it seems like there's always a holdout or two among staff who just don't see the value. So what mm -hmm. advice would you give to some a team who's having trouble making sure that everybody understands the value of working together? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great question. And I think, you know, part of it is getting at the root cause of their skepticism. And, um, you know, in, and in some respects, and this actually, you know, coming from my union environment, it kind of becomes a classic organizer question you know, Mary Catherine, can I ask what's holding you back from finding any value in this PLC? And, and you know, again, getting to that root cause of, you know, for, for, some, for some educators, it could be a slight they felt 15 years ago when they first tried something and it was rebuffed, right? And so now they feel like, you know what, because I was never valued as as the educator of educators, I am not going. I don't feel like anyone has anything to give me anymore because I was never seen as that. And you know, and that's that is a problem that it, that has a solution, right? To say like, well, what it, what is it you would want to impart on this team? Um, and for others, it's finding out um, that you know maybe they are incredibly distracted by other responsibilities in their day, and they think, you know what, if if I, if I didn't have to worry about, um, you know, this happening in my family or, or if I didn't have to worry about period four and this is period five and period four is I'm having a heck of a time with them this year and then I get to PLC period five and I cannot concentrate because I am still busy in my head over 
you know, what, what went wrong period for, what went right period for. Um, so if they, are, if they are willing to be transparent about why they're holding out from participating, um, then, then those become solvable problems, right? Right. If, if, they, if they aren't, then I, do think, then I do think you actually, sometimes it just helps to have an agreement with them to say, you know, there are a number of people who value this. It sounds like you don't find the value in it right now. Are you comfortable with us moving on, though? those of us who feel value in it, so to keep moving on. Um, with an open invitation that any time you would like to, you know, merge into this work, um, that you are, that the door is still open. Um, because you don't, what you don't want to happen, you want, I mean, you want to value the individual, right, who has that skepticism. And, and if they're not, if they're not comfortable exploring that skepticism with you, you also don't want to hold back another group of people who are feeling like they're getting something out of it at the same time. And so right. ha having that conversation and just saying, you know, are, are you comfortable with us moving on in, in exploring these, you know, this powerful topic, right? Um, you know, these, the traits of writing or, the, you know, whatever it is your PLC might be tackling. Um, and then, again, with the open door that you are welcome to to jump in when you're ready, and um, you know, which is of course the sort of thing we see teachers do with students all the time, right? When you know you're not ready to start right now, when will you be ready? Well, as soon as I have a pencil. Oh, I can actually do. I do you know where the pencils are on my desk? Because I am happy to lend you one. Um, right? Sometimes there are sometimes there are simple solutions, and then sometimes a student just says, you know, Ms. Ricker. I, I can't concentrate today. This is what happened. You know, last night, you know, last night my dog got really sick and I can't stop thinking of my dog. And in adults, those things happen too. Sometimes there are really professional reasons why someone can, is not ready to engage in professional development yet or doesn't see the value in that PD. And we need to respect their expertise and, and address that as much as we can. And sometimes folks aren't ready to tell us what's holding them back for them when they are ready to tell us and then join the group. That's great. Thanks, Mary. Um, Pam, we're going to move on. Thanks for calling in. This has really been awesome to have you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. I have to drop off, but thank you, guys. All right. See you later, Pam. Thanks so much for calling, Pam. Bye. Yeah, good to see you. Thank you. Yep. Bye. Um, so we just have a couple more questions here for you, Mary. Um, one is can we, can we just stop and say that your Minnesota from the three of you right now is just the best thing ever. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're like northern Minnesota coming out. I mean, it's like up there, Minnesota coming out from you guys. Uh, oh yeah. Ninety miles south of the border. That's right. <laughs> oh, go ahead, Paul. No, we got our moms on. Oh, oh, Pam's oh, mom yeah. and your mom and mine. Oh, that would be I know. It would have been hilarious. Maybe maybe in the next episode, Mary. Um, That's right. So uh, just to close out in sort of broad terms around um, what's grabbing your attention from an educational standpoint right now, um, what are you paying attention yeah. to? Oh, gosh. Well, you know, so we, we talked about teacher leadership, which is definitely something I am paying attention to. Um, I'm also really intrigued with some of the expanded opportunities we are giving our students and we're, and the expanded assets we are recognizing students bring. It's been something that's been in discussion, boy, um, 
almost my entire teaching career, and yet I feel like we're really getting our hands around what some of those assets are, right? So, so first, being asset-based in the way we view our students and not having this, you know, not having the sort of deficit-based attitude about, you know, what our students don't have, not being naive about the work we need to do to make sure our students have access to the most, you know, healthy, robust lives they can certainly have, but also recognizing the amazing assets our students bring to school that we can tap into that make them, you know, really, that make their learning really powerful. Um, so some of the things I, that are kind of grabbing my attention is this, this move to a seal of biliteracy on high school diplomas. Mm. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but the idea is that if, if students graduate from high school being literate and um, literate in more than one language, that uh, there are a number of states, I, 23 or 26 states, is that those two numbers I, are coming to mind right now, um, but a number of states have recognized now that high schools can affix a seal of biliteracy to a student's diploma. And so if, you know, if, um, if Spanish is your home language, for example, and you are graduating literate in both Spanish and English, then you can get a seal of biliteracy on your on your high school diploma, and 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 I think that's a it's fabulous. It opens a world of opportunities to you, both as a high school graduate, and then of course applying for scholarships and applying for college and or any higher education situation that I I think is really powerful. And so as I look to the sort of um, opportunities we're giving our students and the sort of recognitions, those are those are really grabbing my attention. Um, Language acquisition being one of them, you know, we see more and more schools opening that are immersion schools or, or bilingual or multilingual schools, um, and that's, it is really exciting to me. Um, and, and I would say then, too, then the community-based work or the teacher and community-based work that I, I'm really excited about, it, um, the, the things happening, the activism happening in more and more cities where they are defining the sort of high-quality public school experience every child deserves, and then advocating for that together. So you see teachers and paraprofessionals and students and families and community members all advocating for their, you know, to bring music and art back to school, um, to increase the number of school counselors or nurses, um, you know, to to define what this high-quality public education is um, and maybe even increase the number of preschool spots open or um, advocate for a universal pre-K, um, advocate for higher quality um, out-of-school time programming and even summer school programming. Um, these community-based efforts where you see broad and deep coalitions building to, to not wait and have education defined for their children, but to be the leaders in defining education for them, um, those movements are really exciting me, and I'm, I'm listening very closely because I think we're coming to more and more of a consensus nationally as these movements spring up in their own communities, St. Paul being one of them, um, Chicago, Milwaukee being a, a few of the others here in the Midwest. Uh, we certainly see it happening uh, you know, in every corner of the country, but seeing this consensus start to, de to develop around a well-rounded um, education for all of our students, 
um, in many respects grounded in a community schools experience that sees um, students have access to a full range of services at their fingertips and at their family's fingertips. Um, and then in coordination with other, with other public services or other, you know, other public governments like a city or a county, um, those, are, those are some of the really exciting movements that are, that are capturing my attention. Super. And then finally, I would say the number of educators who are bringing racial equity conversations directly into their classrooms. Mm -hmm. um, we, we have certainly seen racial equity um, become a, a more prevalent topic in professional development settings. And we have seen educators not wait and sort of have that those racial that racial equity work in a professional development context sort of subtly shift their work. We're actually seeing educators talk directly with their students around around racial equity topics that are either happening in our country someplace, sometimes right in their own communities, and then using these you know using very natural taught critical thinking skills to apply them to situations and so um, and then and then the fact that you you take that and you combine it with social media so that educators are sharing with each other mm -hmm. how they are having these conversations um, so that they are starting to form some of their own best practices around having racial equity conversations directly with students so that educators are seen as learners alongside their students even as they are helping to um, they're helping to facilitate a conversation um, that is it's it's really some of the most potent teaching opportunities I've seen come up and I, I feel really privileged every time I get the opportunity to you know to read about someone's experience whether it's on their blog or you know somehow on social media yeah, and I will say that we will put up a link to the the sealifyliteracy.org so that people can check that oh, out. Perfect. Yeah. It does look like twenty six is is. Um, oh, I got the second number right now. <laughs> you got together, right? Um, with another eleven, either in the early stages or under consideration for it. So just fifteen states that have not yet gone there. So that's um that's super exciting. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Um, absolutely. Yeah. So. so so we're getting close to November, and it's an election year. So it feels like we should definitely ask you um, about your thoughts about the election coming up and where it stands in relation to uh, education. Yes, and I have many. Um, <laughs> and so I, and and first, I come from a lifetime. And actually, I have to correct you, Paul. It was not most likely to succeed. I was voted most likely to be president. Oh, um, which is, it could have been. Which is probably a little different because maybe some of our classmates didn't see being president as succeeding, um, <laughs> of course, the way I did. And so um, I have always, I mean, I love civic engagement. I love voting. I, I, you know, I, I have two children of my own. I've taken them voting to my polling place with me ever since I could. Um, I love introducing students to, to voting. Um, I love you know, when I was at, when I was teaching full time, I loved partnering with social studies teachers and doing you know election year classroom stuff and um, different student voter registration um, information sessions, and uh, and so right now I, I actually approach uh, you know I approach my thoughts on this election in very much the same way that um, I love opportunities to educate our populace. Um, and uh, you know our our union takes that role really seriously, 
and and we you know in in walking both roads we actually do um, we did endorse Hillary Clinton both in the primary and in the general election and at the same time um, through entities like Share My Lesson uh, sharemylesson.org, which is a platform for teachers to share lesson plans, uh, upload their own lesson plans as well as download lesson plans from teachers across the country and in some cases across the world. Um, we also want teachers to have access to some of the best practices in, um, in teaching about the Electoral College and teaching about civic engagement and in having conversations with students about current events. Um, and so this election in some respects unlike any other, which I know is how everybody frames every presidential election. But this one um, is, is, is a really powerful one to bring into the classroom because we have, uh, we have a really unconventional candidate who, um, and to have that conversation about you know, the history of our democracy as well as the path to the presidency um, makes for, again, really interesting critical thinking discussions. Um, my one my one caveat to to putting that as um, neutrally as possible is that um, our my my members our, our teachers and paraprofessionals have been sharing with me their concerns around um, bullying and uh, discrimination like they have not seen before yeah. and um, and so they are they have been um, contacting us for more and more information. It happens to be, um, you know, Bullying Awareness Month, and and so we, we do happen to have a lot of things at our fingertips that other fabulous organizations um, like Teaching Tolerance um, have for us, um, as well as some materials on Share My Lesson. But we so we've seen more incidences of educators and paraprofessionals having to step in on. Um, discriminatory, uh, na you know, name calling, as well as taunting, um, or or physical, you know, threats of physical violence or even physical altercations, and um, and that has spiked, and that's not healthy. And and so my final thought on the election is this: in many respects, there are opportunities to teach the election, teach using the election like we have in the past, um, and then there are opportunities to teach like we've never had to teach before. Um, and that is to really dig in deep on civil discourse and to make sure that our students understand that that um, they can be better than this. And our expectations actually um, as as families and, and their educators are that we do expect them to be better than this. That's great. Thanks, Mary, for spending the hour with us. It's been fun um, listening to you and um, just talking and having Pam join, for sure. Um, oh, that was wonderful. You. Yeah. Thanks for your time and uh, good luck with everything. Thanks so much for having me. This has been a great conversation. Thanks for joining us today, Mary Catherine. You can follow Mary Catherine on Twitter at MCBricker and Paul at PRJTuskey. And you can follow me at Snyder underscore Erica. Thanks to Paul Tuskey's Mad Garage Band Skills for providing our music and the Teaching Channel staff for all your work getting a new kind of PD up and running. Thanks to all of you for being here today and for everyone listening. If you like what you hear, head on over to iTunes or Stitcher to subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. We'll see you back here in two weeks and we'll be discussing Do the Right Thing.